Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning, church. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning at Oak City Church for week eight of Connecting the Dots, our series about uh, how the little stories of the Bible tell God's big story that helps us understand our story. If you haven't been joining in, uh, don't let the fact that we're on um, week eight bother you. Uh, These messages stand on their own, but we are, every couple of years we try and do this, go through the whole sweep of the unified story of the Bible. And so we'd love for you to listen to the past messages and catch up over the next few weeks. We're also doing a Bible reading program together, uh, which has been great. We have about 80 people signed up for that. If you want to sign up for that still, you can go to uh, our homepage and go to the the series page for connecting the dots and 11 instructions and how to sign up. And then you get to read people's comments. It's like reading it together in a way. It's been great to engage in that way. And we're grateful that people have done that. This week, we're at the part of this series called The Fall of Israel. That's how far we are in the Bible. And I want to start with a question. I want to start with this question. Do you know anybody, do you know anybody that has a particularly difficult time admitting that they are wrong? This is one of those things where I really wish we were in the same room together because I'd like to talk about this question for a while. And I really want to know who's the first person that comes to your mind. You should tell the people around you who the first person is that comes. You should text me because I'm pre-recording this. You can text me and I can text you back while you're listening to me. And I'd love to hear who the first person is um, because it should be you. Let me just say that. It should be you. You are the person that you know that has the biggest problem admitting that you're wrong because all of us have that problem. And if you're saying, I don't have a problem admitting that I'm wrong, then okay. Uh, It may be somebody in the room with you, which since I just told you to talk to the people that are with you about who comes to your mind first, that would be an interesting conversation for me to be there for. But know this, that if you think they are the one that has that problem and is the biggest one that has that problem, they are probably thinking of you too. So go ahead and work that out. Let me know uh, if you need some counseling. We have problems with that. And that is why we're at this point in the series, the fall of Israel. This is why the Old Testament is so long. This is really a story of the Bible that there's a problem and God's going to fix it. I was thinking about that this week. And this is, so this is, these are the gospels. This is the, this is the solution to the problem. This is how long it takes God to solve the problem. Not long at all. He can, he's got an easy fix for the problem. Not easy, it's Jesus. And then this is how long it takes him to explain the solution to the problem, how that works. That's the New Testament. This is how long it takes him to convince us that there's a real big problem that needs to be solved. That's the Old Testament. And that's where we are and where we've been. Uh, The story of the Bible, real quick, is that God created us for perfect fellowship with Him, uh, with each other, and with the creation around us. And we know this. Um, I'm convinced of the Bible for a lot of reasons. I'm convinced for intellectual reasons. I'm convinced for historical reasons, for philosophical reasons. But I'm also convinced for emotional reasons, that the more I get to know that book, uh, the more I think I get to know, the more it just, it reads my mail. It knows me. And we know that we're meant for a, a perfect relationship with this divine creator. We have a sense of that. We have a sense that we're meant for perfect relate. The standard for our relationships with each other is really high. And even with creation, especially the last few years, we have this sense of that. And the Bible affirms that. The Bible then says that the problem comes when when we, when Adam and Eve, but we, because we still do this, decided that instead of letting God be God, we wanted to be gods. Uh, we wanted to be gods. And really, we rebelled against God 
in doing that. And that's hard. And we will do everything we can. We'll look anywhere else to find something other than that to be the true problem. Right now, there's a part of you at least that's thinking, not me. I don't, I don't rebel against, rebel against God. What are you talking about? I love, I like God. I love him even. I think he likes me. Hold that thought. Hold that thought because I'll be back to it in just a few minutes. Now, the Bible says Adam and Eve um, did that, rebelled against God. They immediately felt shame. They immediately blamed each other. They immediately hid from God. They immediately started justifying their actions. Cain kills Abel, and that story is fascinating and, and still rings true uh, today. The world goes to hell in a handbasket in a hurry, and that gets us to the story of Noah. God comes to Abraham and says, I got a fix to the problem. It's going to take a minute, but I got a fix to the problem, and it starts with you, and promises to make him a family, a nation, and give him a land and bless all the nations through him. And But his family is a wreck. You think, well, his family must be something special. They're not. They're a mess. And they end up in Egypt. They end up enslaved to the Egypt, the Egyptians. And then they come out of that slavery with the Exodus. And that is really a picture of God's rescue of us individually and us collectively as humanity and what he is doing and is going to do. And he gets them into the desert, and then he gives them the plan, the law, and says, I'm going to get you into the land, you follow the plan, and then we're good. Like, we've got things the way that they're supposed to be. Before Moses gets off the mountain, before they even know what the plan is, what the law is, they've broken the law. They get into the promised land. Um, they can't follow it by themselves. He sends occasional judges to get them back on track with the plan. Uh, that doesn't work. He gives them a consistent monarchy, a king to get them back on track, and that's not going to work. And that's where we are today with the fall of Israel, which is going to take hundreds of years. But I'm going to focus on one king and his King Solomon and really one or two interactions that God has with Solomon. So this first passage is when um, Solomon, it's God's second appearance vision to Solomon. We'll get to his first, I'll back up to that in a few minutes, but his second um, vision. And it's after Solomon has built the temple, the house for God that we talked about last week. And so he builds that and God comes to him and says this, the Lord said, I've heard your prayer and your plea, which you made before me. I've consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and heart will be there for all time. As for you, if you will walk before me as David, your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness. And that is given David the benefit of the doubt, isn't it? Doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. This sounds like he has given Solomon a pep talk. Like, hey man, here we go. You can do it. Break. Let's go. That's what it sounds like, you know? And then he goes on to say, but if you turn aside from following me, you or your, that clap was probably pretty loud. The microphone wasn't, sorry. You or your children and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I've given them and the house that I've consecrated for my name. And I will cast out of my sight and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. So he's saying to Solomon, okay, here we go. You're next up. You follow the law. Everything is going to go well for you and for your people. You don't follow the law. Your, your, your people don't follow the law. I'm going to cast Israel out. If this is a Super Bowl bet, right? Where's your money going? Is it on them following the law or not following the, the I mean, it's, it's all over here, right? They're going to, the odds, may, they're going to shut down the whole thing because it's all over here. Based on everything that we've seen to this point, 
they're not going to do this. So why does God even present this as a choice, you know? And so the question in this isn't, is Israel going to fail? I mean, we have hindsight, but we even have the story up to this point tells us they are. The question isn't really, why did Israel fail? Because like they were just like us and that's why they, <laughs> that's why they couldn't do it because for the same reasons we couldn't do it. I think the question for me becomes, why is failure so hard to accept? And what this passage like highlights, one of those reasons, a big one, is because success seems so accessible to us. And that seems to be what he puts before Solomon. Just go ahead and do it, but if you don't, there are gonna be consequences. Um, why, given all the water that is under this bridge between God and Israel to this point, why does he even present that as an option? This like gets to me, and I think it gets to you. We all know we have an incredible capacity to, to perform for good, to do good things, to do right things. We have the capacity for amazing things, spectacular things, productive things, generous things, brilliant things, to accomplish great things, uh, to be a great friend, a great spouse, a great employee, a great uh, scientist, a great teacher, a great pastor, um, a great parent or a great child or a great sibling, a great brother and sister. We all know we have the capacity uh, to do those things. And, and, you know, one of the dominant messages of the day is to lean into that and say, if you can dream it, you can do it. And at some level, that's good. But we have a really hard time accepting that we are incapable of performing to the capacity that we are created with. We are incapable <laughs> of living up to the capacity that we know that we were created with. And that creates a tension that has to be dealt with and will be dealt with in one way or the other. And I think it's the fundamental tension of this passage. He's saying to Solomon, go get it, but there are gonna be consequences when, I mean, if, not when, if you don't do it right. <laughs> like everybody knows he's not gonna make it. Um, he spent the whole Old Testament convincing us there is a problem that needs to be fixed and you are incapable as human beings of fixing it, but it needs to be fixed. That's the whole story. And that's going to be the story with Solomon. And I, that's the story of our inner lives. You know, like why haven't we lived up to the potential or the capacity that we know is within us? Am I good enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I hardworking enough? Am I strong enough? Am I rich enough? Uh, enough. Am I enough? Am I acceptable? We live in a culture where we get an identity, I mean, largely by comparing ourselves to the people around us. And sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. And so we're constantly reminded that as, as good as we are or as good as we have it, it it's not as good as it could or, or maybe as it should be. Uh, and so that creates the same tension in the way that we live our lives. And so how do we deal with that tension? I am, um, there is a, there is a, uh, just some, some news that's been floating around that I've been paying attention to the last few weeks in particular, but, but for months now. And it's about a guy named Ravi Zacharias. And you may have heard of Ravi Zacharias. I may have mentioned him before. He, is, he passed away in 2020, and he was a, a Christian apologist, a guy that talked a lot about defending the Christian faith, and brilliant guy. Um, just was able to, to simplify things, bring clarity to things. Just really brilliant guy. Well, a couple of years in the few years before he passed away, there were allegations um, by a woman in Canada that she had met 
Ravi with her husband at a conference, and then he had become like a, a, a mentor for her, a spiritual mentor for her. But then at some point, the relationship got weird, and he started making advances towards her, and then he asked her, you know, digitally to send her some pictures that would have been inappropriate. And she sued him, and they settled out of court, and there was a non-disclosure agreement. And all of us should have thought, a non-disclosure agreement? Who signs a non-disclosure agreement if you haven't done anything wrong, you know? But, but because of like his ministry and his impact, we gave him the benefit of the doubt with that, and we shouldn't. Right after he passed away, um, there were some stories of massage therapists. He had a, a chronic back problem, so he went to massage therapists a lot, and that he did some inappropriate things there. And then it came out that he was the part owner of some massage parlors. That's not great, you know, because just there's, there's a lot of shadiness in that industry. And, and then the organization, his organization, did an independent investigation of him, and that report came out within the last two weeks. And man, he was not, he was not a good guy. He used his really spirit, it was spiritual abuse by the way that he used his influence. It was emotional abuse, it was sexual abuse. Um, I mean, in a few instances it was rape. Uh, he took some writing trips to Thailand where he was all alone and just all sorts of sketchiness, you know? <laughs> Uh, and really disillusioning. Now, the article that I put in the weekly email, um, if, if you're new, go to the homepage again, and at the bottom you can sign up for our weekly email. That's like our bulletin to keep you in touch. And at the beginning of that, I always put something that's been on my radar and share it with you. This week was an article about Ravi, and there was a quote in there from a guy named Chuck Colson where he said, there's no limit to the human capacity for self-rationalization. There is no limit for, to the human capacity for self-rationalization. And this is what we do in some way, shape, or form with that tension between why am I not who I was made to be? Um, you know, we, we think the good in me outweighs the bad, so it must be okay. This is why we have a hard time admitting that we're wrong because, well, you're wrong too. And so if you admit you're wrong, then I'll admit I'm wrong, and you're actually more wrong than I'm wrong, so I don't even have to say anything about my wrong until you say something, or I can't help it, so why worry about it? The Old Testament is God's way of saying, you can't stop doing the things that create these consequences, but it's also his way of saying, I'm not putting up with these things forever. Like, that's not how this works. There are real consequences to your actions, not just to yourself, but to the people around you, and all of those people, all of them are God's children, and he's not making them put up the, with the consequences of my actions forever. The New Testament is his way of saying, and we don't have to because Jesus takes those consequences. And that's what the cross is. He takes the consequences for us um, because we can't and so that we don't have to. Uh, and so God himself is going to bear the consequences at a proper cost. Um, and they are a problem that needs to be solved. We should be really reluctant to make heroes of anyone other than Jesus. And we should never be surprised to find out that they couldn't do it, that they didn't live up to the standard that we set for them. And God tells us this over and over again throughout the Bible, and we have a hard time listening to him. One of the stories in the readings this week was King David and Bathsheba. Now, David, recall, was a man after God's own heart, the only one the Bible says that about. And in this incidence with Bathsheba, Bathsheba is the wife of a soldier named Uriah, 
who is one of David's mighty men. He is one of his best, one of his guys, one of his buds. And Uriah's up at the front at war where David should be, but it seems that David's being kind of lazy. And he sees Uriah's wife Bathsheba sunbathing and he wants her and he's the king. So he uses his political and I would say spiritually, he's God's anointed influence to get her and he sleeps with her and she um, becomes pregnant. So he, he, this is diabolical, what he does. He calls Uriah back from the front, says, okay, Uriah, tell me how it's going there at the front. And Uriah's like, well, it's the front, man. It's kind of rough. He says, all right, all right. Okay, well, why don't you go uh, spend some time with Bathsheba, you know, and, uh, and then you can go back to the front tomorrow. And Uriah won't do it. He sleeps outside David's door. And David's like, what are you doing? He said, my guys are up there at the front sleeping in a tent. God's ark is in a tent. I'm not going to sleep with my wife. That wouldn't be right. Who would do that, David? And, uh, and so the next night, David gets him drunk and tries to send him back to Bathsheba and he won't do it. So the next day, what he does, and this is, it's chilling what he does. He, uh, he gives him a letter to give to his commander, Joab, and he seals it with the seal. But, it, but the letter is his death warrant. It says, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back to him, from him that he may be struck down and die. And what, what? would we do if we had this type of knowledge that's right there in the Bible of a politician that did this today? We would cancel them a million times over, you know, unless, unless they were on our side. In that case, we'd elect them. <laughs> we'd elect them. And I say that no matter who you support, because if I'm be real honest, I think both those candidates were crooks. I think if we knew everything about them, we would be shocked and yet we'll justify it because they're on our side. And, and God through Nathan ends up saying this to David, to the man after God's own heart. He says, why have you just despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil? And it's like, you have, you have by disobeying the word of the Lord, you've despised it. By this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. And I, when I read that this week, this is the comment I put in the thing, like, I wonder how many things I've done, um, said, or thought in my life that have utterly scorned the Lord, because I guarantee you there are a number of them. I have no idea how many. Now, remember in the introduction, when I said, hold that thought about, I don't think I've rebelled against God. I like God, even love God. Like, I haven't rebelled against Him like that. This is what the Bible says. You can be a man after God's own heart and do just horrible things. You can have utterly scorned the Lord by the things that you do. Do you feel that tension? Because I think that's the tension that we get to with the fall of Israel and with the whole Old Testament. Maybe I haven't done a great job of it, but you should feel it. And if you don't feel it, then you might should be careful that you haven't hardened your heart against God and that you don't care what he says or uh, what the consequences of your actions are to the people around you. Um, Jesus says this, uh, he's talking to some of his disciples and he said, it's not what, um, goes into a man that defiles him. There are all these Jewish laws about washing your hands and what you eat. He says, it's what comes out of him that defiles him. But this is where we think, well, you know, I haven't done it. I've just thought it, you know, or maybe said it, but, and Jesus isn't having that. He says this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within, out of the heart of man come these things, evil thoughts sexual immorality, theft, it comes out of us. Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within 
and they defile a person. Now just tell me we don't have a problem and it doesn't have consequences. Go to Solomon. All right, we'll go to Solomon. And um, uh, so let me, I'm going to, I said earlier that we started with, with Solomon's second vision of the Lord. God came to him. I'm going to back up to his first because it says something that, that is, is helpful for this passage. And so right before that, it says this, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to marry his daughter. He's not supposed to do that. He's not supposed to do that. Then it says, um, Solomon loved the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father only, but he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place where everybody made their sacrifices. And they're not supposed to do that. The high places are bad. And Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. He sacrificed like nobody's business on that altar he wasn't supposed to sacrifice on. But Solomon loved the Lord. He loved the Lord, but he really, really screwed things up. Uh, now, that first passage where, where God says to him, uh, you do the right thing, it's going to go well. You do the wrong thing, Israel's going to suffer. God wastes no time. Um, that tension goes away quick as to what's going to happen there. We, they lose that bet quick. Because that happens in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. And in 1, Corin or, sorry, 1 Kings chapter 10, we start to see the results of that. Uh, this is a passage from, from Deuteronomy that gives where God gives to, through Moses to Israel, like, you're going to have a king. When you have a king, here are the rules for a king. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord said you shall never return that way again. So no horses. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. So not many wives. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So not excessive silver and gold. This is what Solomon does. First Kings 10. Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. And that was a, a funky number back then, even, you know, it's a bad number. It indicates bad things. And that that's a billion dollars worth of gold. That, he doesn't define excessive. That's excessive. It actually says that silver was a, like of no accord. No one paid attention to it because there was so much of it in the day of Solomon. So strike one. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities uh, and with the king in Jerusalem, strike two, lots and lots of horses. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite woman, Ammonite women, Edomite women, Sidonian women, and Hittite women. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, strike three. And his wives turned away his heart from the Lord, just like God said they would. Solomon loved the Lord. Solomon royally, no pun intended, royally screwed things up. <laughs> Both those things are true, right? Those things are held in tension. And that is all the kings. God takes a long time to tell that story, hundreds of years. This is towards the end of it, a king named Manasseh. It says they didn't listen, and Manasseh led the Israelites astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So God cleared out the promised land to give it to Israel of some people whose, whose sins, the sins of the Ammonites had been complete. And he puts Israel in there. And Israel turns out to be worse than the people that God had taken out in the first place. And so he's going to send them into exile. Why did God choose the people of Israel? Is it because they were something special? Because they were better than everybody else? No. 
No, it's not because they were good. It's because God is good. And God just doesn't have much to work with. They're no different than anybody else. He could have picked anybody to, to enact this plan to save humanity, right? We, we tend to think God opposes the bad and gives grace to the good. That's how we think it works because we're, we're just built for law, you know? But it's not because we're all messed up. We're all, we've rebelled against God. We've despised the word of the Lord. We've scorned him in some way. What do we do? You know, practically, what do we end up doing with that tension? Again, there's no limit to the human capacity for self-rationalization. And so I think when you look around in our culture and in our church, what we do is, is one thing we do is that we lower the bar. Um, we think and say, God can't expect us to do something that we can't possibly do, so he must be okay with me just the way that I am. And so we take it easy on ourselves and then on each other. And on the one hand, like, there is some truth to that. Let him who um, has not sinned cast the first stone. You know, judge not, lest ye be judged. Uh, Jesus, the Son of Man, didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. In that passage in particular, it says he didn't need to condemn the world because the world's already been condemned. <laughs> like it comes with an understanding that says judge not lest to be judged. doesn't mean that th there's not judgment and discernment needed. It just means, you know, you're just the same as everybody else. God's the one that brings judgment. Uh, what we've done is said, well, sin's not a big deal or sin's not a real thing. And this goes this goes right back to the beginning where we want to be God and we want to define good and evil. Uh, we've made ourselves God. And if we feel like it's the right thing to do, then we should be able to do it. It's, it's in our day, it's borderline abusive to prevent some, someone from doing something that feels good to them, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, which we're never going to really know if it hurts anybody else. And this... Um, uh, I mean, this breaks down. It breaks down ultimately when you think about the idea of heaven or the afterlife, which I don't think people think real, real um, specifically about, you know. Uh, but most people believe that there's an afterlife. But unless we have like a, a Burger King, have it your way heaven, it doesn't work. Because if, if that plays out the way that it does, then we all need our own individualized heavens where, again, we would be God and things would be the way that we want them to be. Otherwise, we have to conform to what God wants. And that's what he wants. And that's what he wants us to do right now. I, um, uh, I said this a few weeks ago in a sermon. Heaven isn't going to be filled with um, people who have issues with each other. You know what I mean? You're not going to be like, well, I don't want to walk down that street of gold because Jack lives down that way. And we got to go down this way because I don't want to talk to that guy. You know, that's not going to happen. Heaven isn't going to be filled with guys that pass by girls and give them like creepy looks. You know what I mean? Heaven isn't going to be filled with guys, women. No one's going to look at porn in heaven. It's not going to be like that. If heaven isn't going to be um, racist or sexist, it's not going to be filled with inequality. There won't be socioeconomic inequality in heaven. But all those things are things that we seem to justify and write off. And we try and alleviate the tension on our own instead of bringing the tension to God. God doesn't write that stuff off, right? We're all God's children. It hurts one of us. It hurts all of us. He don't want to blow off that tension of, I love God, but I can't live the life he made me for. He wants us to bring that tension to him. And he'll fix it 
but he'll fix it by forgiving us uh, with the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf and beginning the process of sanctifying us, of changing us to be like him by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's going to require, there won't be an absence of tension in that process. Amen? There will be a lot of tension in that process. And it's going to take some work, and it's going to take each other, and it's going to take the Holy Spirit, and it's going to take the church. The stuff's going to get worked out. Uh, we weren't made for a low bar. Um, and we lower the bar so that we can get what we want and escape that tension. Um, and in reality, the bar's always there. The bar's always there. Is what Ravi did ever okay? No, it's not. Is what David did ever okay? No, it's not. But somehow we'll find a way to say that the things that you and I do are okay. In reality, what we do is we keep it lower for others than we do for ourselves. And that's the second thing in this is that we settle for double standards. We lower the bar and then we settle for double standards. And this is probably what you were doing if you weren't the first person that came to your mind when I asked you, do you know somebody that has a really hard time admitting that they're wrong? <laughs> you know, it's kind of that what I'm doing isn't that bad or what my people are doing isn't that bad. Whether your people is defined by race or geography or sex or ethnicity or wealth or education or your church, whatever it is. But what those people are doing, what those people are doing, that's really bad. I found this, um, I found this on, on Twitter, um, listening to someone that I looked it up. Um, she's this woman, she's a reporter for the Times. She's pretty interesting. She's Catholic and um, converted from Methodism to Catholic Catholicism, really serious about her faith. And she said this, there's something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. There's something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. It's the idea you have to keep making up for the things that you've done wrong, but I'm never going to let it go. I'm never going to actually forgive you for what you've done wrong. And that comes out of a culture where we've got different sets of standards and I'm meeting my standards, um, but you're not meeting my standards and you're meeting your standards, but you're not meeting, um, or I'm not meeting your standards. And so I never have to forgive you because there's nothing, I, I never have to forgive you because there's nothing I ever need to be forgiven for. So I never feel the need to really forgive somebody else because I never really do anything that's that, that wrong. And I don't want to forgive you because then I would have to give up the righteousness that's gained by being a person that's been wronged or being a person that's on the right side. And if I give up my forgiveness, then that doesn't matter anymore. She said this, she said, the idea of forgiveness is to give someone the opportunity to have an identity that's not based on the way in which they failed. And what a quote, what a quote. The idea of forgiveness is to give someone the opportunity to have an identity that's not based on the way in which they failed. And that is, that's it, you know? Your identity isn't based on your performance, but in our culture, an absent, a sense of the grace of God, our identity is based on our performance. And as long as our identity is based on our performance, uh, then it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to let go, and to forgive people. And it's going to be hard to let go of having an identity based on your performance. Um, your identity in Christ isn't based on your performance, but on His performance. And I used to tell my kids this all the time, and I haven't told them it recently, so I'll tell them it today. The most important thing about you—I don't know if they remember this—the most important thing about you is that God loves you. It's that God loves you. And he doesn't love us because we were good. C.S. Lewis said he makes us good because he loves us. And that's a, uh, that's a freeing truth. And so this is, we either lower the bar, we settle for double standards, 
or we accept the mercy of God, the grace of God. I got, this is what this lady goes on to say, I got several emails that said, I don't have a problem with forgiveness. I just have a problem with the victim having the burden of forgiveness. And she says, well, that's what forgiveness is. What do you mean you have a problem with the victim having the burden of forgiveness? Like that's how forgiveness works. Uh, but, but in this story, who's the victim? Who's the victim? We get in this twisted calculus of who's right, who's wrong, and who's wrong is more wrong. So who's the bigger victim and who really has to apologize and who has to forgive? If God's the creator, it's why the beginning of the story is so important. If he's the one that's in authority, if it's his creation, if we're all God's children, then God's the victim. God's the victim, right? You've despised the word of the Lord. You've utterly scorned the Lord. If we've rebelled against God's plan for our life and God has authority, then he is the one that is the victim and he has the burden of forgiveness. He, he the victim takes the pain in order for there to be reconciliation. And that's the cross. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin, sin, and that in, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sinfulness, and he had no sinfulness, so he could, and gives us his righteousness. Uh, I think at the end of, of Solomon's story, he got this. Now, obviously, Jesus wasn't there, so didn't get it in the same way, but I think he got it. Ecclesiastes is like the biography of Solomon, and it's really the biography of all the ways that he screwed this thing up and how none of them satisfied. And he gets to the end of this, and he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, keep his commandments, I think, is, you know, don't dismiss the tension. Don't stop trying. Um, don't lower the bar. Don't settle for double standards. But fear God is humble yourselves before the Lord and know that no matter how hard you try, you can't do it. And that's a real problem. I said earlier that we tend to live like God opposes the bad but gives grace to the good. James says, God, this is therefore, it says God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Uh, and to be humble before him is to acknowledge that he is the one that made you. It's to be grateful for the capacity for great things that he has given you. It's to be regretful for your inability to fulfill that capacity and for the consequences that that creates for him, for yourself, and for those around you. And to confess that that is a problem that you cannot fix and then accept the grace that he's shown you in Jesus. And not only has he forgiven you, but he's made a promise to make you new. I'm gonna finish with a, a quote from a, an author named Brennan Manning in a book he wrote, I read this forever ago, called The Ragamuffin Gospel, but a book that changed my life. He writes this, when I get honest, I admit that I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt, I hope and I get discouraged, I love and I hate, I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I'm trusting and suspicious. I'm honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I'm a rational animal. I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. <laughs> and he was an alcoholic, so that was a problem for him. He said to live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. 
As Thomas Merton put it, a saint is not somebody who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. The gospel of grace nullifies our adulation of televangelists, charismatic superstars, and local church heroes. It obliterates the two-class citizenship theory operative in many American churches. For grace proclaims the awesome truth that all is gift. All that is good is ours, not by right, but by the sheer bounty of a gracious God. Well, there's, there's much we may have earned, our degree and our salary, our home and garden, a Miller Lite and a good night's sleep. All this is possible only because we've been given so much. Life itself, eyes to see and hands to touch, a mind to shape ideas, and a heart to beat with love. We haven't been given God in our souls in Christ. We have been, sorry, we have been given God in our souls in Christ and our flesh. We have the power to believe where others deny, to hope where others despair, to love where others hurt. This and so much more is sheer gift. It's not the reward for our faithfulness, our generous disposition, or our heroic prayer, prayer life. Even our fidelity is a gift. If we but turn to God, said St. Augustine, that itself is a gift of God. And he concludes by saying, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn or deserve it. That's where the fall of Israel is meant to lead us, to Jesus. Father, thanks for your grace and for your goodness. Thanks that you've created us with incredible capacity for good, Lord, and that we know that. God, I pray that, um, that your Holy Spirit would convict us with that tension in deep, deep ways, and that we wouldn't try to escape that, but we would come to you with it and lay it at your feet and receive the grace of Jesus that's been offered to us uh, with his death on the cross and with rising from the dead and the gift that you've given us of the Holy Spirit. God, we love you, and we are so grateful of how you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.